Amen. Hey, once again, we're in our study. We're religions, cults, and the occult. Number 13, Mary, I'll give you another shot. Part two, I'll take you. That's right. And the untold history of the charismatic movement. But that's right. Hey, we have a special guest star with us today. Get it for Alta. She's here. Thank you for... Yay! Just want to get that plug in there for you. That's right. And by way of recap, did you guys go home and cry last week because you were in the workbook? That's right. Can you believe that? Or did you have a hard time driving home with all those hand cramps? We filled in like four blanks, man, in one study. It was amazing. That's right. But hey, by way, uh, way of recap, what are we doing in part two? Because part two of our study, the first half is dealing with the aberrant behavior, beliefs, and we're going to get into more of that again, unfortunately. But the second part is this tagline, the untold history of the charismatic movement. Because the premise is this, the reason why it's so weird and strange and obtuse this behavior is because it's supposed to be this latest last days movement of the spirit of God. And they want to use Joel chapter two as a primary text, which has nothing to do with the church, by the way, we already dealt with. But we've been seeing that ain't true throughout history. Are you kidding me? After the death of the last apostle, the apostle John, uh, we have Montanism and basically you got 1900 years of this behavior how could you say this is the latest thing in the last day excuse me nothing new under the sun okay but their big milestone uh, event they said uh, was the Azusa Street Revival now I'll give you that that from there it began to spread not only across America okay it's nothing new it's been going on for a long time but it began to spread across America and frankly around the world officially if you will but then after it spread it began to what Split, man. We even begin to begin to see how many times this thing has split. Now, is it a surprise you split when you get off of this? How do you be like-minded as Christians? This, the Scripture actually tells us to be like-minded. How can we be like-minded when some of you guys probably ate chicken today? It's impossible. You'll never be like-minded with Pastor Billy. It's he think beef stock all day, right, Chris? Yeah, that's right. Praise God. That's right. That's a good intern. But anyway, that's. <laughs> You know, that's your, no, but seriously, but how do you get like-minded? We're all different backgrounds, pedigrees, beliefs. No, because you're like-minded because we all agree on this. We're all getting our source of truth right here from the Bible. And guess what? You can be like-minded because God doesn't speak with a forked tongue, right? He, he means what he says, and he says what he means. It's very clear. He wants us to know his truth. But when you get off of this, no wonder there's so many different factions and splits. And because the charismatic movement does not base their belief on this, as we've been seeing, guess what? Man, they split, and they split all over the place. Now, the first split we're dealing with, uh, hence our workbook, is oneness Pentecostalism is what we began the journey last time. Now, again, by way of a little bit of a recap, oneness Pentecostalism, probably the most famous one, if you will, is this guy, T.D. Jakes, Okay. And if he truly believes uh, what oneness Pentecostal believes, they add to the cross of Christ. We're going to get into this tonight. They not only mess up the Trinity, but they add to the cross of Christ that you need to be baptized and you need to speak in tongues in order to be saved. Is that the gospel? So if that's truly what this guy, and that's his roots, that's his background. Remember how wishy-washy he was on stuff, including homosexuality, right? But if that's what he believes, guess what? This guy's going out there, New York bestsellers times list, millions of people follow this guy, and they're being led straight to hell. That's serious stuff. Right? As we saw, my theory is this. Why do these people keep getting the airtime? Why do these people, the world love them? They get on the New York bestsellers list and they get on uh, Fox News and they get on CNN and all these other. Why, why are they celebrating? Why, why is he on Oprah Wan Kenobi? Right? Well, I got a theory and it goes like this. If you're the enemy and you want to deceive people, especially people in the church, then who are you going to promote and make sure they got the money and the doors open for them? False teachers, right? So again, you think, well, it has to be God's blessing. Look at them. That's a, they've got um, 30,000 people go to their church services. They got not necessarily from God. 
Just something to think about. Just something to think about. So he's probably the biggest one. Now, why did they get it wrong? Because, again, they follow the five signs of a cult. How do you know you're going to get involved in a cult or you're going that direction or you're already in one? There's five things that cults always do, okay? And you see this in the charismatic movement and certainly with oneness Pentecostalism. First one is their source of authority, what we just saw. Now, they'll sit there and say, oh, no way, man. We believe the Bible is the word of God. Well, that's great. Praise God. I'm glad for that. The problem is you don't practice it. You don't go to this as your sole primary, sola scriptura. What's sola mean? Alone, Bible alone, scriptura, Bible, Bible alone, that's it. If I want truth, where do I go? Right here. Is that what they do? No. They say this, but they really say, I, God told me to tell you I had a vision, I had a dream, uh, and this, no, no, I, you, you need, my, I know what it really says, only me. I, no, I'm a prophet of God. God's given me a special new word for today. Excuse me? That's the problem, and that's why you end up with uh, these things. So their source of authority is wrong. Now, when you get off the Bible, what's going to happen? Everything else falls downhill, and that's where we left off last time. The next thing you get wrong is God. And boy, do they have a concept of God totally messed up. This is what we're going to pick up today on the Trinity. Now, what they uh, believe in is what is called modalism, which is not the biblical uh, re- uh, teaching of the Trinity. Modalism is basically they deny amongst other things, the eternality of the Godhead, that God the Father, there's one God and only one God, okay? In fact, let's revisit that picture from the early church, right? And uh, God is one, we can all agree. Everybody agrees on that one. And the Trinity is not saying that there's three gods. We're not saying one plus one plus one equals three. No, one times one, the same essence eternally, one times one times one equals one. So we got God who is the Father, God is the Spirit, God is the Son. The Father is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Son. The Son's not the Father. Now, the thing is, that's the eternal nature. Modalism would say, nope, God the Father is just in this mode at this time. And then God the Son is at this mode at this time, hence the term modalism. And God the Spirit is this, no, he's eternally the Father, eternally the Son, eternally the Holy Spirit. That, and you think that's a, a, not a big deal. It's a big deal. Because you get the wrong God wrong, you're going to get the wrong Jesus wrong, and you got the wrong gospel. And it comes out, as we've been seeing. Okay, Now, that's where we left off last time, the middle of the second page there in your workbook in Oneness Pentecostalism. We left off with the relationship of persons. Okay, Again, now we're dealing with Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the Godhead. It says there, Jesus Christ is uniquely described as God's only begotten Son. He's also described as the only begotten in John 1. The Holy Spirit is uniquely described as proceeding from the Father, John 15. The Father sent the Son and the Holy Spirit in Christ's name due to the, underline this, underline this word, due to the eternality, the eternality of Jesus Christ. Begotten must be understood in the sense of generation, not creation. Not to mean that he didn't just, when he was born to the world, well, that's when he started. No, he's eternal in nature. He's fully God and fully man at the same time. This is another thing we saw in our Jehovah's Witness study that they get wrong. They want to say, well, that's what, you know, he was the first born of creation. See, so that means he's just a creative being. No, that's not what he's talking about, right? Let's continue on. He goes on to say, from, uh, from this we can deduce that the Father begat the Son, and the Holy Spirit proceeded from the Father. Now, pay attention. The difference between begat and proceed, it's a fine point. Probably a better word to use is this, so you don't get confused about the Trinity and how it all works. Okay, the more common word sent is perhaps the safest place to focus on the relationship 
with the members of the Trinity. Because you and I look at the word begotten, well, that, that's a beginning point in time. It's not at all what the scripture's teaching, okay, when it comes to the eternality of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, okay? Now, continue on. There is clearly an initiating role of God the Father has in the Trinity. The Father sent the Son with authority, and he also sent the Holy Spirit. The Son clearly has the initiating role with the Spirit, and uh, the Son will send the Holy Spirit. The relationship within the Trinity never describes the Father. Listen, here's your first blank. Get ready to cry. But Leanne, you're back. How you doing? No way. So I felt like a reverse rapture. I didn't even see you. Just all of a sudden you appeared like an angel of the Lord. But anyway, but, anyway, but your first blank is this. The relationship within the Trinity never describes the Father in a subordinate, right? Subordinate, okay, uh, role, right? Why, why wouldn't the Bible describe God like that? Because he's equally, the Trinity is equally eternal, equally powerful, equally God. One of them's not lesser than the other. They're all God, all eternal, all equally. Okay, so the Father is in some subordinate role and never describes the Holy Spirit in an initiating role. While there is a function of order within the Trinity, this does not lead us to conclude that there is a subordinate nature. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are, underline this, equal in nature as God, right? Your brain's starting to fry yet? You getting your thinking caps on? It's a little bit deeper tonight, but we need to deal with this because this is important. You can't get the Trinity wrong Okay, or you're going to mess things up. Okay, and that's what, unfortunately, oneness Pentecostalism does. The nature of God's immutability. Let's say that. Now, isn't that the big word for today? What's that mean? I don't know. Okay, that God doesn't change. Why does he change? Because, hello, he's God and he's eternal. Okay, he doesn't change. The immutability of God, as he says there, leads us to believe with historical Christianity that the order of the relationship with the Trinity is eternal. Okay, as we saw last week, the scripture says Jesus is what? The same yesterday, today, and forever. Okay, eternal. Now, the final paragraph there on that page. As there is a functional order within the roles of the Trinity, there's also an order of emphasis that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit serving in relation to creation. For example, in salvation, we find the Father in the role of electing, the Son in the role of redeeming, and the Holy Spirit in the role of regenerating. Okay, so there's different roles within the Trinity, but that doesn't mean that one's lesser or subordinate than the other one, and it certainly doesn't mean that one popped on the scene later than the other. No, they're all God, all eternal, just as much God, just as powerful. That's the Trinity. Now, we ended on this last week, but I want to make sure before we continue on that we understand the biblical teaching of the Trinity. So we're going to watch this video again. Let's take a look. What is the Trinity? Many skeptics seem to misunderstand this important doctrine of Christianity as a pagan idea or a modalist idea, but a brief explanation of the Trinity will explain that neither of these are correct. The core doctrine of the Trinity can be said in three sentences. There is one God, God is three persons, each person is fully God. This differs from a modalist understanding, which would say there is only one God who reveals himself in three different forms or persons, whereas the Trinity says there are three coexisting eternal persons who exists as one God. The Trinity also differs from a pagan grouping of gods who say there are three different gods who are simply one in purpose but are fully separate, whereas the persons of the Trinity are not different gods but one God. Most of those who misunderstand the Trinity tend to classify the Trinity as one of these, but they are both incorrect. The Trinity is not one God revealing himself as different forms, and the Trinity is not three different gods. 
The Trinity is one God who is three persons, and each person is fully God. The first person of the Trinity is the Father. He is the source of the Godhead and all things. He is transcendent, uncaused, beyond mere existence. He simply is. The second person of the Trinity is the Son, who is the Word of the Father. He is eternally begotten of the Father, uncreated, begotten, not made. His source is in the Father, and humans can approach the Father through the Son. The third person of the Trinity is the Holy Spirit, who is neither begotten nor created. He eternally proceeds from the Father. He is the active agent of God in the world and the guide of the Church. His source is in the Father as well, yet He has always existed. It is important to mention that the members interact with one another and the world. The Father sent the Holy Spirit like a dove onto the Son at His baptism. The Son sent the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. The Father created the world through the Son and the Holy Spirit. So there is present interaction within the Trinity. Now while the Father is the ultimate source, the Son and the Holy Spirit are not less in power or divinity. They are all eternal and all fully divine. They all coexist as one God, yet as separate persons of one undivided essence. They are eternally loving and love one another in perfect harmony. So there is no disagreement or division within the Trinity because they share only one nature. A good but not perfect analogy has been likened to the sun. There is the star, the heat, and the rays. As long as the star has existed, it has been generating rays and heat has proceeded from it. Likewise, as long as the Father has existed, he has been pouring out his being into the sun and the spirit has been proceeding from him. So it is important to understand what the Trinity is. So again, there is one God, God is three persons, each person is fully God. Got it? Okay, good. Want to make sure. Top of the next page. The Trinity conclusion, right? Because God is uniquely three persons in one being, there's no analogies that can completely communicate the Trinity. Although I think the one we just saw was a pretty good one. We've also seen the other classic one, again, with the water. If you leave it alone, it's a liquid. If you freeze it, it's a solid. If it's heated up, it becomes a vapor. But which one's not water? Right? So, so, right. But still, within that, it, it, best of analogies are always going to break down. But it's not surprising. Continue on. Because the concept of the three persons dwelling in one divine being is unfamiliar to mankind, it is difficult to communicate. The difficulty of man's understanding, though, does not negate the importance of the Trinity. God is complex, and what more important undertaking exists than to focus our attention on God's being? Right? As we saw, I'm not surprised if there's certain things that, if you will, to use the vernacular, fries my brain cells about God. Right? We can come up, I think, with God's given us a brain to come up with some analogies to help us to understand it. But at the same time, even the best of all analogies are going to, you keep pushing so far, they're going to fall apart, to, so to speak. So it doesn't mean you just get pessimistic and you stop trying, I just never know, whatever. But again, if I, because we saw last week, if I could understand the infinite, everything about God, every little nook and cranny, everything completely, perfectly, 100%, okay, then that would make God no bigger than what? than my finite brain. My brain would have to be infinite in order to understand completely the infinite. So that's illogical, okay? And again, it's not mean you get less pessimistic. I'll just never understand because I have a finite brain. No, God gives us plenty of ways to understand it, right? And so, so but certainly, okay, one God, three, okay. But again, the same thing with the deity of Jesus Christ uh, and Jesus Christ, period. He's fully God and fully man all at the same time. How do you explain that? I don't know, but that's what the scriptures teaches. It's called a divine mystery uh, in theological terms, right? And, and, and there, again, we shouldn't be shocked because God is God. Of course, there's certain things we're not just going to fully, completely, 100% grasp, but we, we, we stick to what the scripture teaches. 
whether you can fully understand it completely 100% uh, of the time. Let me give you one more. The scripture is very clear. God is fully sovereign, yet man is fully responsible for his decisions. How do you explain that one? I don't know, but that's what the Bible teaches, right? You can give some analogies. And the challenge is when you start getting slanted on one versus the other, you got to keep them both going at the same time. Same thing with the deity of Jesus Christ. If you just focus on the deity, you're going to have a tendency to deny his humanity. If you focus just on his humanity, then you're going to start denying his deity. You got to keep them both going at the same time. Same thing with the Trinity, right? You got three tracks on that one, right? You focus just on the Father, then you're going to get, you see what I'm saying? It's all three at the same time. Okay, but let's continue on. The practical importance of the doctrine of Trinity is that it requires us to pay equal attention and give equal, is your next blank there, equal honor to all three persons of the Trinity. Right, all right, so that's the Trinity. That's the first thing they get wrong. Why did they get it wrong? Because their source of authority is wrong. They say it's the Bible, but that's not true, unfortunately. The second thing they got wrong is God. Well, it spills downhill. Guess what you get wrong next? You get Jesus wrong. Boy, do they ever get Jesus wrong. Watch this one. One is Pentecostals agree with historical biblical Christianity that Jesus was born of a virgin. Er, something right there. Why is the virgin birth something that we really desperately need to hold to? And why is the Bible emphatic about it? If Jesus was born a natural birth, what would he have been born with? A sin nature. If Jesus was born with a sin nature, could he ever have been the sinless sacrifice? No, so he has to be born of a virgin of the Holy Spirit so that he doesn't come out with a sin nature, okay? That, that's, what, that's not a, oh, that's just a, that's just a doctrine. And the same thing with the charismatic community. Again, unfortunately, what do they say? They downplay doctrine. I don't need doctrine. That's for those religious fuddy-duddies. I'm moving in the spirit of God. No, you need doctrine because you get the wrong God, you get the wrong Jesus, you don't even understand the importance of, and if you want to downplay something as uh, profound as the, the virgin birth, it's going to mess things up, okay? So you got to stick with what the scripture, but again, they don't stick with the scripture, but they do believe at least that, born of a virgin, so that's good, praise God, and then he has two natures, that's great. However, watch this, they not only deny the doctrine of the Trinity, we saw that, and they believe that Jesus, listen, they believe Jesus is God the Father, Woo, woo, what we just see in the, they're eternally distinct, but still one. There's eternally God the Father, eternally God the Son, eternally God the Spirit. But they believe that Jesus is the God the Father, that Jesus is the Holy Spirit. Why? Because they're hung up on this. It's like a Jehovah's Witness warmed over part two. Remember that one? You could only use Jehovah. Remember that one? The Jehovah's Witness, they were like hung up on, What? Well, this is kind of the same thing. It's got to be Jesus. Jesus only, right? And that's another term that people will call these folks. It's Jesus only because you can only be baptized in Jesus only. We'll get to that hopefully in a second, okay? But they're hung up on that. So again, if they got this idea, this preconceived idea that it's Jesus only, then they're going to mess up the Godhead and they're going to mess up Jesus, who's the second person of the Godhead. And they actually say that Jesus is the Father, Jesus is the Holy Spirit, and that the name of God is just Jesus. Really? Well, let's just start with the Old Testament. How many times, I'm not going to rehash the giant study we did on Jehovah's Witnesses, but how many times did we see God's different names just in the Old Testament? There's a ton of them, right? So not only the Jehovah's Witnesses got it wrong, but you're saying it's only Jesus? Man, you, in fact, let's just do a little, little quick, you know, recap of just some of the names of God in the Old Testament. But we're going to put it to worship music. How's that? for getting creative tonight. Let's take a look.
a beautiful psalm. But according to oneness Pentecostalism, that's blasphemy. Don't you dare smile about that psalm. That's horrible because it's only in Jesus' name. Are you kidding me? You got to be kidding me. That was a beautiful worship song. I'm the names of God. And that's not even, now that's just the Old Testament. Let me just, I'm going to have to rip through them for the sake of time. And uh, if you want the the references, you can come get my notes later. But uh, uh, did you know Jesus has different names? What a concept if you read the Bible. I highly recommend it. Okay, but let me just want to say it's Jesus only? Come on, right? Uh, he's called the Almighty One, the Alpha and the Omega, the Advocate, the Author of Perfect of Our Faith, the Authority, the Bread of Life, the Beloved Son of God, the Bridegroom, the Chief Cornerstone, the Deliverer, Faithful and True, the Good Shepherd, the Great High Priest, the Head of the Church, the Holy Servant, the I Am, Emmanuel, Indescribable Gift, Judge, King of Kings, Lamb of God, Light of the World, Lion of the Tribe of Judah, Lord of All, Mediator, Messiah, Mighty One, One who sets us free, our hope, peace, prophet, Redeemer, Risen Lord, Rock, Sacrifice for our sins, Savior, Son of Man, Son of Most High, Supreme Creator, 
over all resurrection, the life, the door, the way, the word, the true vine, the truth, victorious one, the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and prince of peace is just a few of the names for Jesus. So how in the world can you sit there and say, oh, it's Jesus only? I got a theory and it goes like this. Uh, it's when you get out of here. And then you become so self-inflated because you're a prophet of God. Only you have the knowledge. And you splint off from this group that bases their teachings off of, unfortunately, your experience. And somebody told you to tell me, supposedly from God, gave you a vision. That's why. It's, and it's unfortunate. That was a beautiful worship song. But I kid you not, I did that, obviously, to set you up. But it was beautiful. But they would literally look at you and say, that's blasphemy. Jesus only. It's, it's sad to be honest with you. Anyway, let's continue on. They also deny the pre-existence, is your next blank there, the pre-existence of the word as the son and teach that he existed as the father. What are you talking about? We already dealt with the eternality of Jesus. Again, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. John chapter one, the word was God, the word was with God, okay? And, uh, and, and so on that, but let's continue on. Here's the big thing. How in the world could you sit there and say that Jesus is the Father, Jesus is the Son, and Jesus is the Holy Spirit? No, because here's the big issue. They're hung up on baptism, if we can get that far tonight, that's saying that you gotta be baptized to be saved. They add to the gospel. Uh, but speaking of the word baptism, what do you do with the baptism of Jesus? Hello, let's read that right here. Right? As the study with the Trinity, there's multitude of passages that speak of the Father, Son, and Spirit as separate persons. Again, they want to say that Jesus is, anyway, the Father and the Son and the Spirit. One passage is his baptism. Let's read it. Okay, Matthew 3, 16 through 17. After being baptized, Jesus, there's one, came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God, Okay, descending as a dove and lighting on him. And at the same time, and same space-time mass continuum, a voice out of heaven, meaning God the Father, said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now, how did that take place? If Jesus is the Father and Jesus is the Son and Jesus is the Holy Spirit because it's only Jesus. Because of your modalism. It can only be this time. How did that happen? Did Jesus do the old thing? Like, hey, squirrel, look over here. And then he hurried up and went back up to heaven. This is my son. And who am I will be? And then everybody's like, look at this guy. And he went squirrel and looked over there. And then he came down in the form of a dove on himself. That's a pretty cool trick, by the way. And of course, I'm being facetious to make a point. Says, what? How could you sit there and say that Jesus is the Father and the Holy Spirit? And it, anyway, because you're off the Bible. Jesus had a pre-incarnate ex, uh, existence, meaning he existed eternally before he became and was born of a virgin. Okay, pre-incarnate simply means existence prior to the incarnation. His existence as the second person of the Godhead uh, prior, he was in existence before, the, again, the virgin birth. Positively stated in his essential being, Jesus never began to be. He existed from eternity as the second person of the triune Godhead. Negatively stated in his essential being, Jesus Christ did not begin to exist when he was conceived in the womb of his mother Mary. That's the big important announcement and Paul makes in Philippians chapter two, where he says that Jesus took being God in nature, God is eternal, so Jesus is eternal, took on the form of a servant. He came to this world to die for you and I, right? So, and that's why, again, another important truth of the uh, duality of Jesus, that he's fully God and fully man at the same time, is because he had to be God because only God is sinless. 
but he had to be man because only man can die for our sins, right? You can't divest one or the other. You got to keep them together. That's why the Bible teaches that because it's true, okay? But God doesn't contradict himself, okay? And then finally, the second person to try and God him made a conscious and gracious decision to lay aside the glories and the reputation of deity to take upon himself the nature of man in the form of a servant. But guess what? He was still existing before that as the eternal uh, second person of the Trinity. Christ's preexistence is shown in passages. I'm not going to read them to you. You can check it out yourself. John 1, John 3, John 6, John 8, John 17, Hebrews 1, Colossians 1, as well as the Old Testament, Micah 5 and Isaiah 9, 6. Jesus was active prior to his incarnation, primarily as the creator. Colossians 1 makes that very uh, plain, doesn't it? If you re- we've read that not too long ago. Colossians 1, he what? Who created all things? Jesus, all things came from him, by him, for him, through him, right? Very clear. But also the term, most of the times when you see in the Old Testament, the phrase angel of the Lord, most theologians would say uh, that you're dealing with a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ prior to the virgin birth. Okay, now, so you get God wrong, right? Because you got your source of authority wrong. You got Jesus wrong. Guess what they get wrong next? And again, these are not just, oh, that's just, you're just trying to bring division. (laughs) You want to be like-minded, stick with the Bible, right? But I'm just giving you the five signs of a cult, right? And again, we saw this before. Even sec- This is the definition, even secular definition. How do you know somebody's getting involved in the cult, right? Well, they're going to get source of authority wrong, God wrong, certainly the Trinity, Jesus, and they get man wrong. Shocker. Okay, they get man wrong. Now listen to this. Oneness Pentecostals are Arminian in soteriology. That's a couple big words or you're not going to find on the back of a granola bar or the pancake mixed cereal box, if you actually read that. Uh, what? Soteriology, soterios, salvation, study of salvation. So that's what that means, right? Arminians, we saw before, juxtaposed against Calvinism, okay? And basically the Arminian camp after Jacobus Arminius Basically, in a nutshell, Arminianism people believe basically it's all on man's shoulders, salvation, that you could lose your salvation. And that is a thread that goes through the charismatic movement as we saw before. And that's not true, right? Our salvation is complete in Christ and it's not on our shoulders. It's on him on the cross. Amen. Praise God. But Arminianism kind of leans more towards man and the, the lack of security in salvation. But they believe that man inherited is your next blank there, inherited weakness from Adam and although as far from perfect righteousness is still free to do spiritual good. Really? I don't think so. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter three. Man, talk about blunt in the scripture, right? Hey, you ever get those days as you turn there, I'm gonna stall and give you some time to get there, but you ever get those days when you're feeling pretty good about yourself, you know what I'm saying? To use the secular terms, man, you're just, you're, you're on cloud nine, man. You're, you're, your self-esteem, your self-respect, your self-love has gone through the roof. You're just bubbling over. It's all about you, 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 and you're just having a great day, just, just salivating and just how cool you are. Read Romans 3. It'll set you straight. By the way, I, don't, I hit this every time I can get it. You need to esteem others better than yourself. You want to be Jesus' disciple, you need to deny yourself. Pick up your cross, come follow him. You want to love somebody, it ain't you. You love God first, then your neighbor, okay? All that is false teaching from secular men who are atheist, God-hating people. Rhymes with Freud and Young. Let's move on. Uh, Romans chapter three and verse uh, 10 says this. As it is written, there's how many righteous? Arminianism, 
One is Pentecostalism. Uh, no one. Uh, in case, I love this. Uh, not even one, in case you were wondering, in case you doubted. Not even one, Chris, okay? There is no one who understands God and no one who seeks God. Well, I know some guy. He was a really good guy. Well, this is the point, right? Uh, even the guy that supposedly seeks God, God's saying, I see the heart. He's not doing it for pure motives, pure, righteous, completely righteous, not one ounce tainted with sin motives. He knows the heart, the thoughts, and the intents are motives, right? And so, well, but he was a great guy. He served and he gave a lot of money. He built the thing and yeah, really, then why'd you have to put a plaque with his name on it, right? Where's the pure motive? Why does it, he got upset because he didn't get the kudos he deserved. <laughs> so don't give me this baloney that you, there's, there's somebody righteous out there. So Paul's saying, are you kidding me? There's no one. And how many times does he, he use an absolute statement? No one means no one, right? He said all, how many is all? That's an absolute. Have turned away, they be, together become worthless. There is no one who does good. Er, what did they just say? They believe that man can do spiritual good. What's God say? We're just quoting Bible. No one. No one who does good is tainted, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. In the way of peace, they do not know why, because there is no fear of God before their eyes. Wow, right? And, and, and again, you're sitting there going, man, that sounds, that sounds pretty hopeless. I mean, we're doomed straight to hell. I mean, how can we ever? You're right. <laughs> And that's when you keep reading, you get to uh, chapter six when it says, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. That's when it starts going, <gasps> and then he gets to Romans chapter eight. And he says, there is no condemnation, no, not one. In the Greek, it literally means not even a teeny weeny, tiny, tinsy bit. There's not absolutely not a, even a spot, a condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? Wonderful news, but he lays the case. There is nobody, you can't do any amount of spiritual good. You can't earn favor with God. It's impossible. No one is righteous. God sees your heart. You might fool other people, but you can't fool God. But this is nothing to get wrong about just even the basic nature of man. The biblical response, sin can be defined as anything contrary to the character of God, either by commission or omission, transgressing God's word, lawlessness or rebellion, missing the mark of perfect righteousness. And see, that's the game that people play, isn't it? Well, I'm not as bad as Hitler. I didn't, I didn't rob a bank like that one guy did. Didn't you watch that D.B. Cooper guy? He, you know, they still don't even know where he's at. He robbed a bank. I didn't, I've never done that. And of course, when you make that point, you have to talk like that, right? So that's just, <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, but anyway, so no, the, but that, no, the, the, the choice is not finding somebody worse than you. We could all play that game. The standard's God, who is holy, who is holy, who is holy. What's holy mean without sin? You can't get there. You can't get to heaven unless you're holy. Guess what? We've all blown it and fallen short of the glory of God. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. And that's, that's the important thing. You've got to understand the depravity of man. You can't get there on your own. Okay, and so they, dis, they uh, deny that. Every person has a sin nature. It's a sinful state in which people are born. We inherit the sin nature from Adam, Romans 5. The sin nature is the corruption of our nature and that which inclines us to sin. Why do we even give in to temptation in the first place? If we're so wonderful and we can do spiritual good, why do we fall for temptation? Because there's a part of us, the old us, after being born again, the old us, the sin nature, wants to rebel against God. That's why there is no unrighteous. That's the only reason why it works. That's the only reason why Satan can get at us. 
and we fall for it is because there's a part we still have to deal with, the old rebellious sin nature. The result of the sin nature is total depravity where the corruption of sin extends to every aspect of our being, okay, including our intellect, conscience, will, and the heart. Well, they were just a nice person. Nice don't get you to heaven, right? And you may only see them certain hours during the week, but God sees everything, their whole life. There ain't nobody's going to stand before God. God, I just didn't know. No, right? But praise God, he made a way. So they get man wrong, okay? Now the fifth one, and man, it's bad enough you get all this wrong, but again, notice how it spills downhill. You get off the Bible what's going to happen. False teachings, false teachers, you're going to end up with a false salvation. And man, they do big time. Okay, here's, here's just a couple aspects of that. Oneness Pentecostals agree with the historical biblical Christianity that through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, sins can be forgiven and humanity reconciled with God. However, draw a line under that, put a square around it, draw some, a uh, couple rockets, one to the left, one to the right, uh, asterisks, uh, fireworks, do something. However, now what does that mean? You know what we're gonna get into? You're getting to the classic phrase, Jesus and, Jesus or, or Jesus but. And if, or in this case, Jesus, however, anytime that happens, that's not the gospel. It's Jesus, period, right? They add to it. Watch this. However, oneness Pentecostals add to the saving work of Christ, works is your next blank there, needed for salvation, Right? And they do it in two ways. We might get through this first one tonight. What they add is you have to be baptized in order to be saved. And that turns baptism, which is symbolic, into a work that is required for salvation. And that's not biblical, right? So let's explore that. Oneness theology maintains that baptism is a necessary part of salvation. That is, in order to be saved, one must be baptized by immersion. And it goes even more legalistic than that. Listen to this. Not only must baptism be by immersion, it must also be administered with the formula in Jesus' name. And you cannot use Matthew 28, which is the biblical formula, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So, that, so, so, so now you're taking phraseology and making it a requirement for salvation. You see what I'm saying? It's not just baptism that they add and make it into a work, but what are they also adding? Now, it's got to be a certain formula in order for you to be saved. It gets even worse. Then they say this, finally, the baptism must be administered by a duly ordained minister of a oneness Pentecostal church that maintains oneness theology. So now you went off from the cross of Christ. You said you got to be baptized, so you're adding that. Then it's only in Jesus' name, so you added that. And then it could only be a person who's from one, oneness Pentecostalism. Well, wait a second. I mean, just that one aspect. This began in 1914. So you mean to tell me all the people through history who uh, got saved weren't really saved? I mean, how could they be? Because there was no oneness Pentecostal clergy. Stop and think about what you're saying. But that's three things you're adding to the cross. Baptism, a name formula, and it has to be a oneness Pentecostal person. Wow. So can I tell you something? Just on that alone, are these people saved? You can't because you're not relying solely on the cross of Christ. And these guys are out there with 
tens of millions of people around the world tuning in, being led astray. And it isn't just led astray. If they buy into this, that you have to be baptized in order to be saved, are they really responding to the gospel? No. So now you got people going to your so-called church services who, guess what? Your last breath here will be your first breath in eternal torment in hell. Now that's serious stuff. And that's why you can, I, I, we'll, we need, we'll take the hits. Pile it on. Oh, you guys are mean. You're, you're divisive. Why can't you talk about, why are you always going to call out names and pick on people? I didn't pick on nobody. We're supposed to call out names. How many times have we dealt with that before? Paul called Philetus, Hymenaeus, Alexander. John called out Diotrephes and Jesus, the Pharisees, in uh, Matthew 23, in public, by the way. And they're still in the Bible. For 2,000 years, they've been called out. But somehow we can't? No, because here's the issue. Okay, I'll give it if you want to wear robes and we don't wear robes. I'll give it if you want to sit in chairs and we sit in pews. I'll give you all that. But this is eternity here. And if you get the wrong gospel and the wrong Jesus, we're the most hateful people if we keep our mouth shut and don't warn people. That's why we deal with it. That's why we're having our study. Now, they would say, oh, but see, you just don't understand. Isn't that the phrase? You just don't understand. Because the Bible teaches that you have to be baptized to be saved. And once again, shocker, guess what they do? They, they finally go back to the scripture, but what do they do? They twist the scripture and they take it out of context. Shocker. Now, I'm going to end on, hopefully, just a few of those examples that they want to say, the Bible's saying that you have to be baptized in order to be saved, and we're going to see not at all, period, right? John chapter 3, verses 3 through 7. I'm going to read it. You can turn there if you want. But it's the account of Nicodemus. And they want to say that this is proof that we've got to be baptized in order to be saved, right? This is one of their texts. It says here, Jesus answered and said to him, Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? He cannot enter the second time into his mother's womb and, and be born, can he? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, <gasps> there it is. See, he said born of water. That's got to be baptism. <laughs> no. And of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. First of all, nowhere in the passage does the word baptism even occur. Hey, that's your first clue. Does it say baptism? Does it say baptism at all? all right, and they say, well, that's, that's, that's what the, the phrase there says, uh, born of water. You're making an assumption. By the way, if Jesus wanted to say that you need to be baptized uh, to be saved, don't you think he could have just said that? I mean, think about it. He could have said, truly, truly, I say unto you, unless one is baptized and born the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Right? But he didn't. Why? Because that's not what he's talking about. It has nothing to do uh, with that. Okay? And again, plus if Jesus had said baptism then he would have contradicted a ton of other scriptures that says it is not by being baptized you're saved. It is by belief. But Jesus didn't mean that because Jesus will never contradict himself because Jesus is God and God never gets it wrong and he never lies like man and he, and he never contradicts himself, right? Jesus throughout the scripture teaches that it is by belief. John three sixteen for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes, does it say believe and be baptized? No, believes in him 
uh, shall not perish but have eternal life. John 3.36, whoever believes, and Jesus is speaking here, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Notice again, he didn't say anything about baptism. Ephesians 2.8, Paul says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourself, it is the gift of God. Nine, not of works, which is what you're turning baptism into, lest anybody should boast, okay? So again, of course, Jesus was not meaning baptism. If he meant baptism in this passage with Nicodemus, he would have said baptism, okay? But of course, he's not because other passages of Jesus speaking is very clear, is we are saved by belief, not of works, lest anyone should boast, okay? Titus 3, 5 says, he, God, saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth by the renewal of the Holy Spirit, right? So when does that happen? When does a person get washed by the Holy Spirit? When does God's mercy come upon you? When do you get saved? What is it that saves you? Ephesians chapter one, turn there, right? Ephesians chapter one, verse 11 through 14. I want to drill this home. Uh, and it's when you believe, that's when you get saved. Plus, as you're turning there, flip it around. You mean to tell me if somebody believes on the Lord Jesus Christ and trusting uh, in their, his work on the cross, as Romans 10 says, and that they confess him as Lord, they believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead, the belief factor. You mean to tell me when they truly do that, that and, and let's say they did schedule a baptism, even right then, right? Let, let's say the Philippian eunuch. Remember that, the story? All right, you might get to that. Okay, and he believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. At that moment, he saved Scripture is very clear about that. We'll see it in a second. Okay, but what, what if when he says, hey, look, there's a body of water right here. Let's, let's, what's stopping him from being baptized now? Okay, notice that baptism followed the belief. But let's say that when he got out of the, the, the chariot thing or whatever he was riding in, what if he fell and hit his head and died? He went straight to hell because he was not baptized. Well, that's what one this Pentecostal would say. What about all the people that do get saved? What about the soldiers who've made uh, a turn to Christ on, 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 the, on, the, on the field? They didn't have time to get baptized. What about people that get saved? I've led people to Christ in, the, in, in I'm not saying to both, but in the hospital before they died. They didn't have time to get baptized. Are they in hell? It's ridiculous, right? But Ephesians chapter one, okay, let's take a look. Verse 11, in him, we were also chosen having been uh, predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. Also, you were included in Christ when what? You were baptized? No, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having what? Believed, bang, what happened after that? You were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who were God's possession, uh, possession to the praise of his glory. So at the moment, having believed, what happens? Bang, you're saved. The Holy Spirit comes and dwell you. That's God's deposit, his guarantee you're getting to heaven. You didn't make it to baptism yet. That's what the Bible teaches. But these guys say, oh no, no. And again, they want to take this passage from Nicodemus, John chapter three, and say, that water is talking about baptism. No, it's not. All right, uh, but anyway, so let's continue on. Uh, you're saying, well, what is he, what's he talking about then? What's the, the born of the water? Well, there's a couple different opinions. Let me give you both of those. Uh, if, if it's uh, born of the water and spirit, it's not referring to baptism, what does it mean? Traditionally, there's been two interpretations. The first is that being born of water, neither one is baptism, by the way, but they say the first one is Jesus referring to a natural birth and that the amniotic fluid uh, of the baby in the womb is what he's referring to. 
Again, not baptism, but there's that one theory. Uh, another interpretation says that no, it's actually uh, describing different aspects of the one spiritual birth that is needed to be saved. Let me explain uh, that. When Jesus told Nicodemus that he must be born of water and spirit, he was not referring to literal water, i.e. baptism, and not even the literal water, some would say, of the amniotic fluid in the womb. But he's referring to the need of a spiritual cleansing or renewal. Throughout the Old and New Testament, water is often used figuratively of a spiritual cleansing and regeneration that's brought forth by who? The Spirit. The, the Holy Spirit, okay, at the moment of salvation. Okay, water is the symbol of cleansing. The Spirit is the symbol of power. Water and Spirit stand for the cleansing and strengthening power of Christ, which wipes out the past and gives victory for the future. Therefore, they would say that this verse is not a literal physical water, but rather the living water that Jesus promised the woman at the well. It's the cleansing, the spiritual cleansing Okay, the water, okay, and the power, but speaking of the one event that happens at salvation via the Spirit. But either way, which one, whatever you want, you know, side you want to land on, is that verse talking about baptism? Not even close. Mark 16 is another one. Okay, Mark 16 is another one they tried to uh, bring up. Let me read to that. That's the passage, Mark 16, 15 through 18. He said to them, go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe in the name that they will drive out demons and speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes with their hands. They will drink deadly poison. It will not hurt them at all. And they'll place their hands on sick people and they will get well. Well, we don't have time to get into this, but there's a lot of people that believe this passage shouldn't even be included in the Bible at all. And there's a lot of textual, and I would agree, there's a lot of textual evidence that would say this was brought in here uh, and snuck in here by a scribe, okay? Uh, so, but even that, it's a disputed text. And so it probably wouldn't be wise to try to build major doctrines off of this, a disputed text. Okay, but, but listen, that, that, so that's one thing. So, but let's just wipe all that way and let's just assume, okay, it needs to be included. But let's examine this verse. Is that really what it's saying? Is Mark saying that we've got to be baptized in order to be saved? The answer, of course, is no, okay? Uh, what the verse actually, if you slow down and read it with common sense, it actually says that it is belief that is required uh, for salvation, okay? Now, the verse is composed of two statements, right? He who believes and is baptized will be saved. Part two, he who does not believe will be condemned. In order for this verse to teach that baptism is necessary for salvation, you would have to throw in a third statement, which is not there. You would have to say, he who believes and is not baptized is not condemned. But it doesn't say that. Or you would have to say, he who is not baptized will be condemned. But of course, again, this is not there. Mark 16, 16, to teach baptism is necessary for salvation, it's a common mistake. And let me give you a big theological word. You guys ready for this? Man, you're getting, st this won't even be on the back of a biscuit box. I warn you. It's called negative inference fallacy. Let's say that. Negative inference fallacy. Chris, what'd you learn tonight at the study? I learned about negative inference and fallacy. Wow, I've got to go to that church. <laughs> anyway, here's what it is. Let me define. If a statement is true, here's what that means. We cannot assume that all negations or opposites of that statement are also true. And this is where they mess this up, right? For example, let me give you a couple of analogies. 
The statement, a dog with brown spots is an animal. That's true. However, the negative, if a dog does not have brown spots, is not an animal, that would be what? False. Because you can't assume that the negative of something is always going to be true. Okay? In the same way, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. That's true. However, the statement, he who believes but is not baptized will not be saved, that's not true. You're trying to flip it around the opposite and make it a true. And that's what they do. Now, let me give you another one. Whoever believes, let's get specific, not with the dog, with the text here, believes. Whoever believes and lives in Kansas will be saved. But those that do not believe are condemned. Now, that statement is strictly true. Kansans who believe in Jesus will be saved. However, to say that only those believers who live in Kansas are saved is illogical and a false assumption. That's not what it's saying. You're trying to flip around the negative and assume that's true. That's not true, okay? The statement does not say a believer must live in Kansas in order to go to heaven. And the same way, Mark 16 does not say the believer must be baptized. The verse states a fact about baptized believers, they will be saved, but it says exactly nothing about believers who have not been baptized. There may have been believers who do not dwell in Kansas, yet they're still saved. And there may be believers who have not been baptized, yet they too are still saved. The one specific condition required for salvation is stated though in the second part. Don't just pull out the first part, read the second part as well. Whoever does not believe is what? Okay, then you'll be condemned. In essence, Jesus is giving both the positive and condition of belief, whoever believes will be saved, and the negative position of unbelief, whoever does not believe will be saved, okay? Therefore, we can say with absolute certainty what is required for salvation. Belief, belief, period. All he's doing is making a statement about something that follows salvation, i.e. baptism, that he reiterates twice is based on belief, right? If he wanted to say again that it was baptism, okay, then the second part, again, bare bones, should have said, and whoever does not believe and is not baptized is condemned, but it doesn't say that. Again, so they're flipping it around there uh, as well. Oh, by, by the way, the Bible is clear that we're saved by faith alone. Abraham was saved by faith. We're saved by faith. Throughout the Bible, in every dispensation, people have been saved without being baptized. Every believer in the Old Testament, Abraham, Jacob, David, Solomon, was saved. They weren't baptized. The thief in the cross was not baptized. Cornelius was saved before he got baptized. Uh, baptism is a testimony of our faith uh, and a public declaration that we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Scriptures tell us that we have eternal life the moment we believe, and belief always comes before baptism. Baptism does not save us any more than walking down an aisle or saying a prayer saves us. We are saved at the moment we believe. And that's why I wanted you to go to just even the one text in Ephesians 1. Having believed, bang, what happened? You got saved, the Holy Spirit's in you, and that's the deposit guarantee. You didn't make it to a baptism. You didn't get to do one work. You didn't get to do nothing. Why? Because it's not based on nothing you can do. You receive on what Christ has already done. Let me give you one more, Galatians 3. Galatians 3. Now, what's ironic about this is Galatians all about Paul rebuking the Galatian Christians trying to add something to the work of Christ. And yet these people want to go to Galatians and say, hey, you got to add baptism. It's, it's crazy. But anyway, Galatians 3, 27 says this, for all you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. Well, there it is. It says right there, you got to be baptized, 
right? Meaning they take it as water baptism in order uh, to be saved. Is that what that verse is saying? No, first of all, contextually, again, Paul is rebuking the Galatians for mixing God's grace with works of the law, including circumcision as a requirement needed to be saved, which is exactly what these people do. They add baptism uh, as a requirement in order to be saved, okay? And Paul reiterates that it's over and over again, it's by faith in Christ, faith in Christ, faith in Christ, okay? Uh, What saves us is not baptism, okay? Baptism, again, is something that follows belief or faith. Now, secondly, the scripture there says, for all you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. Is there any reason from the context in this passage to assume that you're speaking of literal water baptism that has to be completely, fully by immersion, that has to be in Jesus' name only, that can only be done by one this Pentecostal? No! It has nothing to do with that. And the baptism, of course, that is being speaking of is not the literal water baptism. We already read it in Ephesians chapter 1, right? It's the what? The spiritual baptism that you were baptized. What's the word baptized mean? It's baptizo. Baptizo in the Greek, and it means to be immersed into. It was used of like a, a, a ship. When a ship sank, it was bapt- completely underwater. It was baptizoed, completely immersed right? When do we get placed into Jesus Christ? When we are baptized into Christ. We're baptized, placed into Christ at what? The moment we get saved. This text is talking about the spiritual baptizing when we get saved, the moment we believe in Jesus Christ. Another passage, 1 Corinthians 12, for as one, the, as the, the body is one and has many members, but all members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit, listen, for by one spirit, 1 Corinthians 12, for by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body whether Jews or Greeks, whether slave or free, and have all been made to drink of one spirit. So right there, again, not counting Ephesians 1, by one spirit we were baptized into the body. When were we placed into the body of Christ? The church is the body of Christ. At salvation, and it's talking about that event of being placed in Christ is a What? a spiritual baptism when you're got it that's what paul's talking about here in there when he he says there in the text for you are all baptized into christ okay having clothed yourself with christ when did that happen at salvation it's the spiritual baptism he's talking about right this is not water baptism and again you're ignoring the whole context which is extremely ironic Galatians is a fantastic book. All the books of the Bible are good. That's right, Chris, they're all good. But Galatians is really good, especially when you get people who are legalistic and who want to add to the cross of Christ and create a false gospel. Because that's what he was saying. He even uses very strong words. He says, he who has bewitched you. Uh, Galatians, you, you started out by means of the spirit and then you're wanting to go back to the law, which was the works of man. He, who has bewitched you? Actually, in the Greek, it's pretty... It'll really mess up your self-esteem. <laughs> you see, basically, you stupid, foolish Galatians. That's a good vernacular. He used strong words because he was warned, don't you do it. Don't listen to these Judaizers. What were the Judaizers? The Jewish people said, oh yeah, it's Jesus, but 
you got to keep the circumcision, the Old Testament laws. You got to keep those, you know, festivals. You know, you got to wear wear these special clothing and do all this stuff. And that even goes on today. And Paul would say, don't be stupid and foolish. You started out by means of the Spirit. You were placed in Christ spiritually. It's a work of the Spirit that saves you. It happens at the moment you believe, period. No work can add to it, right? And what's ironic is they try to use this classic book as an example to do the exact opposite of what Paul was warning about. It's, it's just crazy, right? Okay, water baptism is symbolic of what's accomplished when we're baptized into one body by one spirit. It's talking about a spiritual uh, baptism being placed in Christ. And real quick, 1 Peter 3, let me give you one more, and we're gonna close. 1 Peter 3 uh, says this, 21, and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So those who believe that baptism is required, i.e. the one is Pentecostals, they'll put, well, what about this one? What about this one? And they say it's a proof text. that It says baptism, which now saves you. See, you gotta be baptized to be saved. Again, slow down, take a deep breath, and stop twisting the scripture, right? Peter, was, was he really saying that the act of being baptized is saving? Absolutely not. Again, he would be contradicting all the other scriptures, and the scripture doesn't contradict itself. Otherwise, it wouldn't be from God, right? Now, we don't have to guess at what Peter is talking about here because he defines it in the phrase there. He says that the phrase there, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, right? But an appeal to God for a good conscience. Peter is connecting a baptism of salvation, but it's not the act of being baptized that he's referring to, not the removal of dirt from the flesh. Why? Because being immersed in water does nothing but wash away dirt, right? What Peter's referring to is what baptism represents, that which saves us. What saves us? An appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what you're appealing to, not to a physical baptism. It's not at all what he's talking about there at all. Peter is simply connecting baptism with belief. It's not the getting wet part that saves us. It's the appeal to God for a clean conscience. How do you get a clean conscience before God? It ain't nothing you could do. No one's righteous. No, not one. We're all wicked, cut off, headed straight to hell. So how do we get a good conscience? How do we have peace with God? Romans chapter 5, through Jesus Christ. When does that get applied to us? Bang, at the moment we believe and we're spiritually baptized, placed into Christ, okay? That's what saves us. The appeal to God always comes first. In other words, first to believe, then we're baptized to publicly identify with making that proclamation of a belief, right? That's it. So you took something that we should do and it is a good thing to do, and we do want to make a public profession of faith that we're believing on the Lord Jesus Christ and his work on the cross for salvation, but it is not something that saves you. We'll close after this. The belief that baptism is necessary for salvation is also known as baptismal regeneration. It is our contention that baptism is an important step of obedience for a Christian, but we adamantly reject baptism as being required for salvation. We strongly believe that each and every Christian should be water baptized by immersion. Baptism illustrates a believer's identification with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Romans chapter 6 verses 3 through 4 declares, Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? 
We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. The action of being immersed in water illustrates dying and being buried with Christ. The action of coming out of the water pictures Christ's resurrection. Requiring anything in addition to faith in Jesus Christ for salvation is a works-based salvation. To add anything to the gospel is to say that Jesus' death on the cross was not sufficient to purchase our salvation. To say that baptism is necessary for salvation is to say we must add our own good works and obedience to Christ's death in order to make it sufficient for salvation. Jesus' death alone paid for our sin. Jesus' payment for our sins is appropriate to our account by faith alone. See Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 through 9. Therefore, baptism is an important step of obedience after salvation, but cannot be a requirement for salvation. Yes, there are some verses that seem to indicate baptism as a requirement for salvation. However, since the Bible so clearly tells us that salvation is received by faith alone, see John chapter 3:16, Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 through 9 and Titus chapter 3 verse 5, there must be a different interpretation of those verses. Scripture does not contradict scripture. In Bible times, a person who converted from one religion to another was often baptized to identify conversion. Baptism was a means of making a decision public. Those who refused to be baptized were saying they did not truly believe. So, in the minds of the apostles and early disciples, the idea of an unbaptized believer was unheard of. When a person claimed to believe in Christ, yet was ashamed to proclaim his faith in public, it indicated that he did not have true faith. If baptism is necessary for salvation, why would Paul have said, I am thankful that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 14? Why would he have said, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 17. Granted, in these passages, Paul is arguing against the divisions that plagued the Corinthian church. However, how could Paul possibly say, I am thankful that I did not baptize, or for Christ did not send me to baptize, if baptism were necessary for salvation? If baptism is necessary for salvation, Paul would literally be saying, I am thankful that you were not saved, and for Christ did not send me to save. That would be an unbelievably ridiculous statement for Paul to make. Further, when Paul gives a detailed outline of what he considers the gospel in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 1 through 8, why does he neglect to mention baptism? If baptism is a requirement for salvation, how could any presentation of the gospel lack a mention of baptism? Baptism is not necessary for salvation. Baptism does not save from sin, but from a bad conscience. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21, Peter clearly taught that baptism was not a ceremonial act of physical purification, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. Baptism is the symbol of what has already occurred in the heart and life of one who has trusted Christ as Savior. Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 5. Baptism is an important step of obedience that every Christian should take. But baptism cannot be a requirement for salvation. To make it such is an attack on the sufficiency of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you do that, what do you end up with? 
a false gospel. Well, that's just too bad. Those crazy kids, they, they ended up with a false gospel. No, you get a false gospel, you go straight to hell. That's why we got to fight for this. And I don't mean that in literal sense. That's why we, we have to hold fast to the scripture, okay? And unfortunately, one is Pentecostal, that's what they believe. One guy says this in closing, if you believe in baptismal re- regeneration, which again, that you, gotta, you have to be baptized in order to be saved, you would do well to prayerfully consider whom or what you are really putting your trust in. Is your faith in the physical act of being, i.e. baptized, or the finished work of Christ on the cross? Whom or what are you trusting for salvation? Is it the shadow, baptism, or the substance, Jesus Christ? Our faith must rest in Christ alone. So if these people are adding to the cross, and they are, this is serious stuff. But, Unfortunately, we're going to see Lord willing next time for still alive and still here. Okay, they're going to add even more to the cross of Christ. And if you can believe it, but it kind of fits the charismatic theme, doesn't it? They're going to say, on top of all that, you got, I don't even want to use the, the phrase, I'll just call it what it is. You got to speak in gibberish. And if you don't speak in gibberish, you're going straight to hell. You got to be kidding me. Well, Lord willing, we'll get to that next time. Let's pray. Well, hi, this is Billy Crone of Get Life Ministries, and I hope you were blessed with this study. But in closing, let me ask you one final question. If you were to die today, are you sure that you go to heaven and not hell? Before you answer that, let me share a couple things that the Bible says. Did you know that the Bible says that God is holy and that we are not? And the wages of our sin or unholiness is death? In other words, we deserve to die and go straight to hell and be separated from God for all eternity. This is the great cosmic dilemma. God who is holy and we are not, how can we have a relationship with Him? The two will never mix. Now, to make matters worse, we don't even want to admit this, even though God already knows He's God. And so God, out of love, gave us something called the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were not something to just memorize or stick on your wall or give the appearance of being a religious person. The Ten Commandments were God's divine x-ray, if you will, into our heart and soul to reveal this truth that we need to admit. And that is this, that God is holy and that we are not. We are disqualified for heaven. So let's take a look at that divine x-ray that God's trying to get us to realize. Uh, The the Ten Commandments, the, the ninth one says, you shall not bear false witness. That's lying. Okay. How many guys have ever told a lie? Raise your hand. Okay. Well, if you didn't raise your hand, you just did. You just told a lie because we've all done that. Well, that makes us a liar. The, another Ten Commandments says that you shall not steal. Don't ever take anything without permission. How many of you guys uh, have ever done that? Well, you guys already said you're a bunch of liars. All of our hands should have went up on that one. And for being honest, God already knows. Folks, we've all taken something. We've stolen something, right? That makes us a thief. Another Ten Commandments says that you shall not use the Lord's name in vain. He's not just holy. Even His name is holy. Hey, folks, let's be honest. If you can believe it, even the name of Jesus Christ uh, has been turned into a common cuss word. Well, the Bible says that's a sin of blasphemy. Now we're a, a blasphemer. The Bible says you shall not commit adultery. And Jesus said, here's his standard. Uh, uh, even if you look at another person with lust in your eye, you committed adultery in your heart. Wow, so now we're an adulterer. The Bible says you shall not murder. And you might think, well, hey, at least I haven't done that one. Really? Again, the Bible says that the sin of hatred, wishing somebody was dead, okay, that, that's the same thing. Uh, It's akin to the sin of murder. It's just you pulled the trigger in your heart, but God sees the heart. 
Hey folks, that's just five out of 10. How are you doing? You still think you're going to get to heaven on your own? You still think that you're qualified, that you're holy like God, and you could bridge the gap and have a relationship with Him forever? I don't think so. I mean, what did we just see? You're going to stand before God, and so am I. We all are. And we're going to have to give an account for who we are. Hey, hey, God, let me in. Uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a liar. I, I'm a thief. I'm a blasphemer. I'm an adulterer. I'm a murderer. And the scripture is very clear, folks. Such people as these will not inherit the kingdom of God. We're in trouble. But folks, here's the good news. The Bible says that if we would just admit that, that's the first step. To admit that God is holy, that I'm not, I'm disqualified for heaven, I need a Savior. If we would admit that and then ask for the Savior to save us. That, that's what God was doing with Jesus. God gave us His Son, Jesus Christ. He took the death penalty in our place so that we could be completely forgiven of everything we've ever done and be made holy through Jesus so that we can now have a relationship with God both here and now and forever in heaven. We can become qualified. The word that the Bible uses is a word called pardon, that God is willing to pardon us of all of our sins and crimes that we've committed against Him and disqualified us, that disqualified us for heaven, right? And we've actually seen this work in real life. Uh, for instance, uh, there's been people who have committed crimes, gone to court, the gavel's been passed, the judges said, hey, listen, we all know you're guilty, uh, you even admit you're guilty, and uh, for your crimes, you're going to not just jail, you're going to uh, await in jail to go to the death penalty. And did you know that there actually is a way that somebody could get off of death row? It's called a pardon. The one in the authority, the governor, can grant what's called a pardon for that person's crimes, and they literally can go free. Not because of something they did, because the deeds are already done, you can't undo it. Not because of they tried to clean up their act while they were stuck in the jail cell, because that doesn't change anything. But simply out of mercy, the person who has the authority can give them a pardon, and they can go free. And did you know it's actually on historical record that there have been people who have been granted a pardon from the death penalty, and they've refused to take it. And so even though the offer was there to be set free, they themselves still had to go to the death penalty. Folks, in a nutshell, that's what God's doing every single day with all of us this side of heaven. While you still have breath, you still have an opportunity to receive God's pardon. He's willing to forgive you of all your sins if you would just receive His pardon through Jesus Christ. Again, that's what He was doing on the cross. The cross was the death penalty of the day. But since we weren't there, and since we can't earn it, it's a gift from God, you have to receive that by faith. Reach out even today from your own spiritual jail cell, if you will, and say yes to Jesus and God's pardon so that you can be set free and go to heaven. The Bible says that if you will confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the grave, you will be saved. Hey folks, if that's you, don't delay. You may not even have tomorrow. Today could be your last day. Please accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Confess with your mouth He is the Lord. Believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the grave. And the Bible says you will be saved. Well, this has been Billy Crone of Get Life Ministries. If there's anything that we could do for you, our information and, and number will come up here shortly. And please don't hesitate to contact us. But remember, I hope to see you in heaven. God bless.